Hi, this is Bob Mason, Managing Partner at Argonne Ventures, and you're listening to Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. Uh, today, I have Bob Mason on the line. You're a venture capital managing partner at Argonne Ventures, uh, specifically focused in deep tech, intelligent products, things like this. So welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about Argonne and what you're doing over there. Thanks, Brian. It's nice to be here this morning. Yeah, at Argonne Ventures, we look to lead pre-seed rounds in deep tech companies, typically when they're bringing enterprise software solutions to market. So for us, that usually means that they're not generating any revenue, the product is incomplete, and sometimes is literally at company formation. So we like to kind of be at the very earliest stages of company formation. I'm curious, since they're pre-revenue, when you say products incomplete, is this something where you're often getting uh, some intellectual property or, or, or a piece of, frankly, a solution in search of a problem, or you have someone that knows there's a problem in a specific place, an actual business problem, they just haven't finished it yet. Tell me a little bit about that, especially coming from the machine learning space that we uh, oftentimes very technical founders can see the world in their their solution, but no one else can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, we could talk about this in a little bit, you know, in a, in a former life, I, I was a software engineer, a founder and CTO of myself. So I have to watch myself to not just geek out on the technology itself, because the most important element when you're sort of determining if you want to move forward with investment or not is like, is there a real problem here to be solved and not getting suckered into the the notion that there's a technology in search of a problem. Not that we're ever perfect with that. Very much, we try and ground ourselves in the vertical domain knowledge that the founder has, either from their personal experiences, research, some sort of insight over what's going on in this market dynamic. Who are the key personas that they anticipate could be buyers and users of the system? And we kind of build up from the question of why from there. Got it. So I, do, do you find most of the time there, there's a personal history, you're like you're coming in with someone that had a personal history in a specific space and it's like, oh, I think I can solve this thing because at my last job we did X and is, is that yeah, usually where I mean, it's coming say, from? It's, I would say it's more often than not um, from that. It may not literally be that they were, um, you know, within the industry, but they had some connection uh, to the industry um, or, or insight. But, you know, they're also really, really clever people that fundamentally through serendipity or not stumble into a problem. And then they get really, really excited about it and kind of they lend their knowledge and expertise from some other domain and kind of bring it to this problem as well. But yeah, I think there's a, a prototypical founder that like they need to scratch the, uh, that itch and they need to go solve that problem. And they have some particular insight that helps them do that. So just for the audience listening, part of the reason I, I, I asked you, you to come on the show here is we talk about this idea of product orientation for both the technology leaders that are listening to the show, as well as people working in large enterprise data science teams, primarily serving internal use. But this idea of when the product 
literally has to make money in order to survive. <laughs> like that's that's the whole thing. I want to talk about that space, particularly from the lens of founders who are working with data science or they are data scientists themselves. What do those people look like? What are some of the things that are there common things that you see need to change when we're talking about these technologies in terms of the, of the people or the mindset or I can think of some of these myself just in terms of there tends to be a little bit more introversion there, less interested in going out and talking to people, things that are very antithetical, I think, to doing great product work. I'm curious if you see patterns here with the, the founders that come in your door and habits they have to unlearn or new skills that they particularly have to learn because they are smart. They do have the technical knowledge, all that stuff in spades, I'm sure. Tell me a little bit about like the people coming in the door. Are there, are there things that you're like, all right, we got to run you down the, the plan here? Like, <laughs> Being a, a former CTO, it sometimes pains me to say this to the technical founders of startups, but at the end of the day, the actual technology doesn't really matter. Obviously, it has to work and it has, and, and sometimes there's like a technical advantage that you're sort of building in to build long-term differentiation. But ultimately, it's really about kind of the sales and marketing strategy because you need to be able to sort of feed the engine and really justify the value creation that the technology brings to bear. Oftentimes, it's really easy to have an in-depth conversation around sort of the market forces or the dynamics of what's happening within a particular industry and their approach to using data or, you know, sort of machine learning or what have you to go solve that problem. But then they haven't spent enough rigorous time thinking about, okay, well, how do we actually bring this to market? Who are the buyers? What is the sales cycle like? And obviously at the early stage, you don't know the answers to those questions, but oftentimes there's a lot of research or at least hypothesis testing that you can do to kind of validate that. The NSF has a really interesting educational program called i And one of the fundamental tenets is that you should go speak to 100 people. And I think that type of user-centric research is, is really valuable, particularly at the earliest stages when if you're just off by a degree or two, several years down the road, that can be a really material roadblock that you hit. And so starting off on the right foot, I think is super, super valuable. Is there a reluctance to do that kind of work? A lot of the I time. don't think so. I think it's just like you said, it's not necessarily natural to everyone. The best opportunities I see is a, a really balanced team, right? So you have the prototypical business leader and the prototypical technical or product leader, and they come together with a shared passion and they bounce off of each other. But oftentimes I see the product and, and technical people because of the underlying understanding of the data or the technology itself, they actually may have greater insight sometimes on you know how to drive a go-to-market or who the right buyers are or what have you. So I don't think the technical folks in, in an early stage startup absolve themselves of not being really intimately involved with and, and think strategically about their go-to-market and who ultimately they're creating value for. You might be biased just from the, the subset of people that are coming to you and they're willing to like go scratch the edge as you talked about. But do you think there's anything inherently difficult about someone that comes from a data science background moving into a, a product leadership type of role? Is there any reason why they mean, well, it's an uphill battle and it's going to be really tough or nope, they actually make great ones. Any comments about that? I, I've heard they don't make really good. In general, you really need to hire some other people like that. There's definitely some voices in, in the data space that believe that, especially about the transformation enterprises are trying to have and adopting more of these digital native 
product orientations with the work that they're doing. I don't necessarily feel that way, but I'm curious what your take is. My personal background and journey came from being a software engineer, software architect, evolving into be a CTO. And, and in my role as a CTO, I was effectively like a chief product officer. So I grew in my own career of a really kind of understanding the power and the opportunity to be very engaged with customers and really understand their problems and internalize them and then kind of use that to drive a product roadmap. I don't see anything inherent within the fields of data science or, or software or machine learning that would prohibit someone from doing that. Obviously, it's a personality choice. Do you find joy in engaging with customers and kind of learning with them? And if you don't, that's fine. You know, that just may not be what your power alley is. But once again, that may mean that you need to complement yourself with someone that, that does find joy in that regard. When I first engage with technical founders, I often are having a conversation with them over time, a kind of how, where they see their own role evolving. And I see oftentimes there's sort of three personas of a technical leader that often are exhibited by a single person at the very beginning, but over time they want to become more and more specialized. So you have someone that is a purely technical innovator. They're on sort of the cutting edge of the science of whatever they're building, a distributed system, machine learning, data science, algorithm development, what have you. There could be someone that is sort of a head of engineering and they find joy in building great teams, improving team velocity. And then you have, may have someone that has a strict product vision. Where is the world going to? What is the needs of the, of the business? Someone can try and embody all three, but it may actually be that you're only good at scale or you only find joy out of one or two of them, right? And so if you start thinking about being retrospective about where you want to spend your time, you can start thinking about who you want to complement around you to kind of fill those those other gaps. In terms of the when we talk about the part where the tech actually is supposed to get out there and start doing its magic, one of the challenges I, I know a lot of teams have in this space is low adoption. So either they get the foot in the door and, and on the technology. So this is from the technology industry side. They sometimes get the product in there. But the dirty truth is that a lot of those seat licenses aren't getting used and then renewals come up and then it's like everyone's nervous, right? Because the stuff's not getting used. Similarly, on the enterprise side, it's just giving people what they asked for a lot of the time, not digging into what's actually needed. And then, oh, this dashboard doesn't get used or this new tool we built didn't go through change management, didn't. There was no operationalization plan for it. It was never designed. It was just built as a little island of tech. So I'm curious if this idea of like long-term penetration, which is like getting past the first sale, but actually like, did you build something that's what I call indispensable, right? Now we, we can't live without this thing now. Pulling it out would be really disruptive or it just makes my life so much better that I don't want to not have it as part of my tool set or whatever I'm doing. Is that something you have to think about at all with the companies that come in? Are you, are you, are you thinking past that initial sale or are you really there to kind of help them get to that first when I'm just curious how much you think about the low adoption thing or if that's on your radar at all. It's certainly something to be mindful of. Obviously, when we're making an investment decision, they don't generally have any customers. Um, maybe there's a, an early pilot in place. And so we don't necessarily use the signal of long-term customer adoption as a, as a driver for our initial investment decision. But it's very much top of mind after investment. And as we're trying to build and bring the first version of the product to market, being very thoughtful and mindful of sort of 
customer experience and long-term adoption is, is absolutely critical. Grossly speaking, there's you know, probably sort of two vectors that you really have to pull across. So one is like, are you actually building something that the customer needs? And oftentimes the you, you may have a hypothesis and you kind of go build that with as, as much in, information as possible and you're just wrong. And sort of being retrospective in that process and realizing that you have to pull back or go in a different direction. But sometimes it just requires customer education, planned approach of managing expectations and getting sort of buy-in and really having a customer success plan in place when the, the product is actually delivered to them. So I think it's really valuable to sort of being pragmatic and being open-minded that perhaps what you've built is has missed the mark a little bit, but actually investing the time and energy with your customers and making sure that they're well-educated, that there's ways that they can provide you the right feedback, that you've pilot scenario defined mutual success criteria. I think those are really important aspects to really validate if the value that you've created in the product is being realized. So you mentioned this customer experience thing. And I, I remember reading in your bio when I was preparing for the interview, you, you mentioned something about having an opinion about uh, design and user experience and product and all of this. I'm, I'm curious, how much does user experience matter in the context of these products? For most of the companies we invest in, I think user experience is pretty critical. Like obviously there are if you're designing a database or you're doing some sort of you know, networking technology, maybe there's minimal touch points to the actual end user. But even from that perspective, if you think about sort of the developer experience as a form of user experience or customer experience, I think that is as equally valuable and important as having a beautiful UI. I think a lot of my personal inclination around sort of design and user-centric actually comes from my some of my very first work experiences, actually, which were in desktop publishing and, and graphic design when I was first in middle school. And, and then in high school, I was kind of designing logos and putting pamphlets together. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but I had to kind of think about who's reading this, um, how is the information being presented, what choices am I making in font and graphics? And I think that sort of early nascent experience sort of I, I kept building upon uh, over time. And my first job out of college actually was at a startup called Art Technology Group this really interesting blend of being very design centric. And I think we had out of a group of 10 of us, there were probably three or four designers at that stage where we were sort of thinking about design as a wholly integrated part of the engineering process. And so I thought, I think I was apprenticed well uh, in that. And that sort of has permeated my life. And later on, when we sort of, I was a, a software architect building enterprise software, Again, we thought very deeply about the developer experience and wanting the developers to have a fun time with our products um, and having really well thought out documentation and well thought out API endpoints and reference applications and open source code and the, the like. It's always kind of thinking about who is the end user and being empathetic to their needs is really critical. When you get pitched or when teams come in the door, have they typically gone through any type of formal design in the work they've done up to the point they're coming to you? Or is that usually an afterthought? I'm curious about how mature it is when it comes in the door. I would say there are some teams that have a more natural inclination to be sort of design centric or they, they recognize 
the value that they want to place in design as a way to sort of create differentiation, even if they don't necessarily have the resources to do it at the beginning. And it may be that just the founders themselves take their best shot. And, you know, but the conversations we can have about, well, who are your personas? What is the ideal customer persona? Who are your buyers? What are the problems are they solving? Why did you make these decisions? Like you can kind of get a glimpse in, into their sort of user centricity, which I think is really exciting. I don't know if you get into much kind of the difference between buyers and users and do the teams understand the difference there sometimes about who's actually writing the check versus who's going to use it and and then that's sometimes where the adoption thing tanks right because the team that's using it it's not solving their need but the promise sounded really great and everyone could imagine the promise of the product because oh god this tool will cut our call center cost by x because of y and z but the call center people don't want to do it that way as an engineer and product leader, I've fallen into that trap myself. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it's something you're always mindful of. And I think where we try and be helpful for, to a team, or particularly if they have a, an enterprise software solution, like it's a very often a very complicated buying cycle. And there are multiple stakeholders. There are multiple layers of authority sometimes. And sometimes you have to drive consensus before you can kind of move forward being mindful of who are the users using the software, I think is top of mind. And so we just try and educate, you know, founders about that dynamic because it, it may not necessarily something be obvious at the beginning, particularly if you're a first time founder, you know, you, you may not necessarily realize what a complicated world business to business software and enterprise solutions can, can actually be. Do you see any differences in terms of how the product needs to be designed or what the experience needs to be because of the technology that's being used because we're dealing with probabilities with predictive technologies for example it's not binary it's not like if you do this you're going to get this result every single time it's never going to be different now all of a sudden it's not it's or it's disruptive because it doesn't the model doesn't say always say how it came up with thing it doesn't say how it came up with the prediction and so there's some opacity that it's a little bit opaque, perhaps. Is there anything different about that that you see in terms that teams need to think about when, when designing? To be honest, so we haven't really talked about it in that context. Oftentimes, there is certainly a data visualization problem. There's sort of a language of how you want to represent numbers and statistics and probabilities to be able to do that in a manner where an average user kind of gets value out of the data. Because, you know, if you're a scientist, the way you're presenting both raw data and sort of summaries of data could be quite different than if you're working with a business analyst that's a few years out of college with a liberal arts degree. How you interpret results and then present those results, I think, is actually an, a very interesting design problem. That's probably one of the critical components of how you actually sort of create value out of the software uh, in sort of the data science and, and machine learning realm. When you worked in your tech background, et cetera, other maybe they're not design specific considerations, but in terms of, of the product, the inherent nature of using deep technology or machine learning or AIs, is there anything different on the maybe the business side, if it's not the design side, that founders need to be aware of when they're trying to leverage these technologies? Like, oh, the onboarding period is so much harder or getting buy-in is tougher because X, like any patterns that they have to start watching out for? 
Well, I think oftentimes AI-based solutions or sort of data-centric solutions can have a cold start problem where either the, the model that's being delivered to the customer or the refinement of the system requires sort of unique data sets. And those data sets actually come from the customer. And therefore, there's a challenge that the, the potential customers may not see immediate value unless you kind of go through this training process. And that could require just crunching raw data. It could require a human in the loop process. But I think that challenge needs to be sort of faced head on. And you need to be able to sort of think about how you can create value through your software system pretty immediately, despite that problem. So sometimes there are some relatively quick and easy wins that don't require a lot of deep technology, machine learning, you know, sort of vast terms of data analysis. It may be really beneficial to kind of get your foot in the door by solving some really simple problems that may have to do more with process or workflow or some sort of other technical integration. And then over time, you create more and more differentiated value because, you know, the, the data sort of creates the positive feedback cycle into the system. But I think initially, a, a lot of early AI startups just kind of assumed that customers would be patient <laughs> and, would, and would, would let the system run or they would invest the time or energy. And then, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months later, like there'd be this magical ROI. And that's just not how business people operate. <laughs> that you, need to, you need to really have a visceral feeling of value creation in a relatively short period of time. Sometimes it's the order of minutes or hours and not just days or weeks. I don't know how enterprise cybersecurity software is sold, but it's like, I wonder if it's mostly after there's a disaster, because it's like, you don't really feel that pain ever. It's just paying for insurance, you know? It's not a bleeding problem. It's just like cost of doing business, but it's never bleeding. And it feels like it would be a tough sale, you know, when it's taking that long before you ever see the value and then until you find out what you're protecting, right? Or you have some idea. Oh, look at all the stuff we stopped, the opportunity stopped, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but obviously, like if you, take the notion of crossing the chasm. The first step of any startup is to find those early adopters, you know, and those early adopters have the foresight. They have the risk-taking gene built into their DNA, even if they're at a Fortune 500 company, right? Like there's something about how they want to build their career and how they want to differentiate their own leadership that allows them to kind of take the risk on an early stage startup. And ultimately, oftentimes, what you're really trying to do in your sort of sales cycle is to identify as quickly as possible to triage those people and to realize there are a whole bunch of people that may be theoretically great business clients, but they're not early adopters. And, and it doesn't matter how much time or energy you spend with them, the organizational structure, the inertia, uh, and their own risk proclivity won't allow them to get over the finish line. And so you just need to park them and keep them warm for another year or two while you prove out and, and go actually demonstrate value with the leaders that are going to be early adopters. And then come back with a higher price. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because you didn't buy. <laughs> I want to rewind a second when you talked about showing some quick wins or getting some value on the board early. That sounds a lot. If I was just, I was putting my listener hat on, I was like, that sounds a lot like going in and doing consulting where it's like, oh, well, we're trying to sell you 
X this hammer that we made, but you, oh, you kind of need a screwdriver or you need plumbing. You don't need a hammer. You need plumbing. That sounded like services work. So were you, tell me about how do you go in and show quick wins with a product that does, it's fairly narrow in its scope of what it does, but then you're saying show some quick wins. Can you talk about that? Or do you mean the whole product needs to just be focused on quick wins initially? Yeah, I was thinking about this dichotomy, let's say, between deterministic engineered software, you know, that really is around workflow enhancements versus, you know, some sort of predictive model that is derived off of, you know, training data sets and, and, and the like. Oftentimes, the sort of exciting part of the technology realm is on the bleeding edge of, of building some new model. But the reality is there may be an easy fix to a problem within their overall company workflow or, or engagement with their own customers that doesn't require any advanced machine learning. Not ignoring those facts. And once again, if you're really customer centric, you may realize, oh, we, we could actually solve this really interesting small problem first. And it, it allows us to build a trusted relationship with the customer. And then over time, at, with that trusted relationship, we can get access to data. They'll, they'll actually spend the time of using our system, which helps train the system. So that's what I was thinking. To your other point on kind of the role of services, particularly in enterprise software, uh, I do think there is a valuable strategy that can be pursued. In both my previous company, ATG and, and Brightcove, ultimately we, we became sort of global public enterprise software companies. But at the very, very beginning, we're kind of more or less like professional services consulting shops. Where, you know, we had a core hypothesis, let's say in, in my last startup, Brightcove Online Video, that video would be as ubiquitous as text on the web and you would need new cloud-based platforms to allow corporations to kind of manage the publish and publish and distribute a video online to their customers. At the very beginning, we didn't have a full end-to-end -end solution design or built, but we definitely wanted to engage with customers in market. So when we first would pitch a solution, not a product, like an, a comprehensive solution to the customer, maybe 25% of that solution was actually like reusable code that was like platform centric that we could use to the next project. And we just built a lot of custom stuff on top of it. Sometimes there's a very natural demarcation. Uh, so in the online video space, oftentimes we build custom video experiences, 100%, you know, specialized code just for that client. But the back end from a content management and a workflow management was repeatable, reusable, and there were good API endpoints between the two. But then over time, we could actually build reusable video experience software that reduced the level of complexity or customization over time. But we didn't have to do that from day one. We could augment our core platforms through services and, and custom engineering. And you just have to be mindful of that as a strategy that you're imposing and not kind of get in stuck of just being a, a consulting company. One of the challenges, I think, with platforms is it's the promise of the world of all the things that it could do. But sometimes the instantiations themselves are, are missing or the people that are supposed to use it aren't seeing the, the value there, even though theoretically this platform is supposed to support all these different use cases. My general thing is you may need to design something on top of the platform that's end to end for someone to actually first see the value of it before you can start. Let's move it to this industry. Let's move it to this industry. Let's move it to this industry or, or to different verticals. And I'm curious, do you get a lot of platform plays coming in the door 
where it takes crossing the chasm a bit for someone to see what the potential is there or talk to me a little bit about platform products versus actually end-to-end solutions there. Part of our hypothesis of, of our fund and our thesis is that we're actually sort of entering a new business cycle where capabilities should be more vertically oriented. They should be more domain specific. They should be more of a, what I would roughly call like a business application in its style versus a very broad horizontal platform. Part of that is just the, there's enough time that has gone through enough domain experts are comfortable with the broad outlines of cloud computing and data and and machine learning that they're now having intrinsic insights into how to apply those technologies to actually solving um, very specific problems. Obviously, you could still create a tremendous platform that's very broad and, and horizontal, but we actually think if you focus on the business problem of that particular vertical or domain, that that actually creates a, a really powerful wedge and you can increase your value proposition, if you use the platform term, increase the breadth of a platform over time. But if you're not solving that intrinsic problem at the very beginning, you may never get the chance to survive. Any other kind of future thoughts about where things are going? So you're saying vertical focus a little bit more, domain specialization, less broad, horizontal. You could solve the world of problems, you know, across all these different industries with this platform. Any other trajectories that you're kind of seeing, especially with the machine learning and analytics space and data science, et cetera, with uh, tools using these technologies, where the market's going or resistances that are going to come up or opportunities, anything like that? The cross-collaboration across domains is really, really interesting. Just as a small example, our most recent investment is in a, a company called Trilo Bio, which is building a robotic lab automation system, so for biology and synthetic biology and molecular labs. The three founders blend both uh, robotics, computational biology, and sort of pure scientific biology as skill sets. The teams that they've had to assemble include machine learning engineers, mechatronic engineers, and pure software developers. And for them to bring their solution to market, they really have to integrate these disciplines. They're they're using machine learning integrated within robotics to be able to do like path planning for their devices. They're designing an entirely new open source programming language to control these robots. They have to be thinking about their end users who are biologists that have never written code. And so what type of packaging system can they put on top of it to design protocols that get loaded into an app store, for example? That's actually going to be probably one of the most interesting and powerful secular trends. The cross-disciplinary integration of a lot of different skill sets, data scientists and machine learning engineers can be really a, a key pillar of that. But they should be looking for, you know, problems and domains um, from friends and ex-colleagues or, or other serendipitous connections and, and merge their perspective with theirs as well. That sounds like an exciting design space, too, to work on. Thanks for sharing those insights. Any closing words just for our listeners that you'd like to share? It's been really great to have you on, Bob. Any final thoughts? You know, for us as a fund, it's never too early to reach out or, or to see how we can be helpful. Oftentimes, because myself and my partner were operators and entrepreneurs at heart, we like to play in the mud and, and help people figure out like, well, what are you actually building and why are you building it? And here's some ideas and thoughts from our own personal experiences of, of building startups that may be helpful. 
And so I would just encourage people if they have the inclination for a bit of risk taking, particularly if they're early in their career, kind of think about either joining an early stage startup or, you know, being part of the entrepreneurial community and launching some endeavor on your own. It's not easy. When you think about probabilities and math, you are most likely fail. (laughs) Um, But if you can have an impact in the world, it can be some of the greatest fun and and joy through the pain. Is argon.vc, is that the best place to get in touch with you or LinkedIn? Where do you kind of hang out if people want to reach out? Yeah, LinkedIn is good. Our website is argon.vc. You can email me, bob at argon.vc as well. I really appreciate the time, Brian. Yeah, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on Experiencing Data. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.